Parashat Nitzavim. Uh, we, Parashat Nitzavim is, uh, comes after Parashat Kitavo, which is quite a depressing parasha. Not all of it, there's blessings there, but there's also curses. There's also parts of Parashat Kitavo which are very, very demoralizing. And in fact, Parashat Nitzavim also begins in quite a demoralizing fashion. So if you look at the Psukim, uh, you'll see God is continuing to kind of threaten, as it were, those people who are involved in activities which he considers, which God considers to be um, wrong. And I'm going to read you some of those psukim. I've not included them in the source sheet. But if you have a look at the beginning of Parashat Nitzavim, by the way, Parashat Nitzavim is my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And Nitzavim uh, Vayelech, but this year it's separated. It's not a long, it's not a long um, Parsha, it's only 40 psukim. So there are those, he says, who might think to themselves that everything is okay. Um, perhaps there is among you a man or woman or a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from being with Hashem, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and with wormwood. And it will be that when such a person hears the words of this uh, curse, and he will say to himself, He will bless himself in his heart. This is what he's going to say. Shalom Everything's going to be fine with me. Even though I do everything that I want to do, not a problem, I can do whatever I want. Um, thereby adding the watered upon the thirsty. So in other words, that somehow a person will convince themselves, don't worry, yes, it could be that society at large will suffer if everybody does the wrong thing, but I can do the wrong thing. I am outside of that paradigm. Hashem will not be willing to forgive him. And then it says, Then Hashem's anger and jealousy will smoke against this man. And the entire curse written in this book will come down upon him. And Hashem will erase his name from under the heavens. So Nitzavim is not, even though it comes in the wake of Parshat Kitavo, it continues in that theme. And Moshe Rabbeinu is telling all the people in front of him, Atem Nitzavim, all of you are standing here, men, women, children, young, old, important people, not important people. Just remember that this covenant, by the way, this is the original new covenant, the Brita Chadasha, right? This covenant that Moshe Rabbeinu is creating between the Jewish nation and God, this final covenant before they begin the conquest of the land of Canaan, is one which is binding and the consequences of breaking of which are frightening. That's how the Parsha begins. That's the introduction to what I'm going to start saying now, which is the final pasuk of the opening piece 
of this peroration, Hanistarot Lashem Elokeinu, the hidden things are for God. Vahaniglot, and while the revealed things, Lanu Ulvaneinu Ad Olam, are for us and for our children forever. Lasot et kol to carry out all of the things in this Torah. So somehow this pasuk is, is meant to convey a message that is, I guess, meant to underscore everything that has come before it. So to the extent that I'm, I'm trying to explain it, to the extent that these consequences are quite dramatic, that's how God, or Moshe Rabbeinu, is presenting God's covenant with the Jewish nation. What does it mean? What, is, what are nistarot and what are niglot? What is Lashem Elokeinu and what is Lanu Ulvaneinu? I want you to look at the second source. Those who are listening to the Shir who don't have the source sheet in front of them, I know that we have many people who listen to the Shir and who don't come to the Shir here in Beverly Hills because they're all over the world. On this occasion, I would encourage you to download the source sheet. It's important because I've actually reproduced here a little image of the pasuk I've just quoted from Nitzavim. There are ten occasions, says Avot de Rabbi Natan, when there are dots written above words in the Torah. So you know that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet convey whatever it is they are trying to articulate. But on ten occasions in the Torah, those words are somehow um, focused upon in a greater, with a greater focus because of dots that are written above them. And the tenth occasion, the tenth time in the Torah that this happens, is in Parshat Nitzavim on this Pasuk. There is a focus on this Pasuk. There are ten dots written above the letters of the words Lanu Ulvaneinu and the Ayin of Ad. Lanu is three, word, three letters. Lamed Nun Vav, that's three. Ulvaneinu, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then you have Ad, and that is an eleventh dot. Okay? So you have the... This is the tenth occasion it happens. You have an eleven dots. What does it mean? Why are there dots ever in the Torah? And why are they in this particular pasuk? It's very unusual. Okay, it's only ten times in the whole Torah. And why in this particular pasuk, on these particular words, do we have the dots that are in the, uh, you know, the scribe version that we have in our Sefer Torah, in our Torah scroll, do we have the dots that are written above these letters? Okay? I'm going to read you Avot de Rabinatan. Eser nekudot Torah. There are ten occasions in the Torah when we have dots written above the letters. One of those occasions is Hanistarot Lanu 
Ad Olam. So, Lanu Ulevaneinu, those two words have dots written above each letter. And Ad, the Ayin of Ad has a dot written above the Ayin. Nakud, Nakud Al, Lanu Ulevaneinu, Val Ayin Sheba'ad. That's what Avot Derbinatan tells us. It's an ancient source of uh, Jewish traditional uh, belief that you must, when you write a Sefer Torah, have these dots included in this um, scribe-written Torah. Okay? Says Rabbi Soloveitchik. I'm going to read you the English that I've taken from a source um, which quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik. This pasuk is telling us, just let God do his job. We do, need, we do not need to know everything. In which case, how are we to understand the dots that are written above the words Lanu Ulevanenu, which hint that there may be more to this phrase. What are Nistarot? And what are Niglot? And why do Lanu Ulevanenu, the words Lanu Ulevanenu, have dots written above them? Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, whenever there are dots written above a word or phrase in the Torah, the Torah wants us to stop and think carefully about that word or phrase. That's the whole point of the dots. And in this case, Hanistarot Lashem Elokeinu means that the hidden things are only for God to know. There are certain things which are Nistarot and they are in God's domain. But meanwhile, there are Niglot, and they are Lanu Ulevanenu. How are we to understand that? Very simple. Although we think we know everything, and we think that we are in control of our own destinies, in fact, only God is in control. Only God knows the workings of the world. In other words, he understands the mechanics of everything, even if we don't. Moshe has just finished outlining a terrifying prediction of things. What's going to happen if things go wrong? And the Jewish nation seems destined, frank, frankly, for an awful end with no reason to be hopeful. Do you know, sometimes you hear news, sometimes you hear information, and on the basis of your assessment of that information, you think, what's the point of going on? Why should I bother? On the basis of what we've heard at the end of Parshat Kitavo and the beginning of Parshat Nitzavim, anyone listening to Moshe Rabbeinu might think to themselves, what's the point? Shoot me now. Why should I go through the pain and suffering that you have revealed to us will happen in the event of X, Y, and Z. We know X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Shoot us now. Kill us now. What's the point? Why should we go on? To which Moshe responds, don't worry, calm down. Hanistarot l'ashem elokeinu v'haniglot lanu ulvanenu ad olam. Moshe offers the Bnei Yisrael a glimpse of hope. We do not know everything. Stop worrying. Even if something horrible happens, it is comforting to know that it happened for a reason. Do you know what the worst thing in the world is? 
when something terrible happens and it's completely pointless. You can't understand why it happened. And many things happen in our lives. And we think to ourselves, what was the point? Says Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jewish nation, there will be occasions throughout Jewish history when you will think this makes no sense. Just remember this pasuk. Those things you don't understand have an explanation and that explanation is understood by God. There is no pure evil in this world that can have its way just for the sake of being bad. We don't believe in this binary option that is prevalent in other religions, in other faiths, that there's good and there's evil because God is one. So whatever there is that happens in this world, we must interpret to be good. How about the things that happen that are really bad? All that means is, we haven't understood the broader context. And all the things that which really bother us, listen, I don't want to get into, into the details of what that means because I don't want to pretend to you that I understand it. Things that we don't understand are things that God does understand. He has that broad perspective. On the basis of his broader perspective, things that we are not aware of, he is doing the things that he's doing, and things that we perceive to be as bad are not necessarily so. There is no pure evil in this world that can have its way just for the sake of being bad. Everything takes place for a reason. This is what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. And in the meantime, just get on with it. You and your children need to keep going. Make sure that everything continues as it should. In other words, let the nistarot be in the domain of God. However, haniglot lanu levanenu, that which you know, that which you understand, that which you are doing in your life, the things which make sense to you, continue going with them. Don't abandon them simply because there are things that you cannot fathom. Because there are things that you will never be able to fathom that are beyond your comprehension, beyond, you know, as we say here in America, they're above your pay grade. And on that basis, don't try and delve into them because delving into them, all it's going to do is distract you from the fact that the niglot are lanu levanenu, that the niglot are for us and for our children. Let's look at the Gemara in Sanhedrin. It's uh, source number four in your source sheet. And we have the Hebrew at the bottom of page one in the source sheet. I'm going to read to you the English. So the idea of Nistarot being Lashem Elokeinu and Niglot being Lanu Levanenu is the subject of a dispute between the Tanaim, between the Talmudic sages. The Pasuk states, what does it say? Hanistarot Lashem Elokeinu the hidden matters belong to God, our God. But matters that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this Torah. Asks the Gemara, why are there dots over the letters in a Torah scroll? Why do we have the dots over the words, Lanu Ulevanenu and the Ayin of Ad? Says the Gemara, the dots teach us that God did not punish the nation for hidden sins 
until they cross the Jordan River? It's a practical answer. That you, as a Jew, have an obligation to run a just society. You can't just rely on God. The Nistarot are in God's hands. But if somebody does something wrong, go to the police. If somebody does something wrong, make sure you stick them in front of a judge. If somebody does something wrong, make sure that justice is served. The Nistarot, things that people don't know about, you can't do anything about them. I mean, if you don't know that somebody's done something wrong, leave that to God, says the Gemara. However, the, what, the, what the dots are there to tell you is, focus on the fact that the things that you can do to make sure that society is functioning in a fair way, that society is just, you must do them. Lanu ulvanenu ad olam. Because if you know that somebody is a criminal, make sure that he pays for his crime. If you know that someone has done something wrong, make sure that there is some type of restitution. If you don't know, you don't know. You can't be blamed for not knowing. Leave that to God. Nistarot l'Hashem elokeinu. However, says the Gemara, niglot. Don't say, okay, God will deal with it. It's not my business. Don't worry, God, there's a God in the world and there'll be justice because God will serve that. No, no, no. You must serve that justice. You are now going to become the arbiters of your own destiny. You are going to become the people who run the society in which you live. Niglot lanu ulevanenu. You are duty bound to make sure that those who undermine the system pay for their crimes, pay for their misdemeanors, and are punished or at least dealt with in the way that is suitable and appropriate and reasonable so that society can function and that we don't fall into the trap of anarchy. Because if you leave everything to God, all that will happen is you will live in an anarchic society. That's the Gomorrah. Says the Ramban. This is source number five. According to commentators, Moshe said that it is purely God's responsibility to render justice to idolaters who transgress secretly because all hidden things are revealed before him. In other words, you have a fellow who comes to shul every day, puts on tefillin, davens shachris min chamariv, never eats non-kosher food, he observes Shabbos, he does all the things that a religious Jew should do. You go in his house and he has a basement in his house and in the basement, he has some pagan idol, which he worships religiously. Religiously, right? He believes in the idol. Why is he behaving as if he is an Orthodox Jew? I've got no idea. But he wants to convey an image that he is a full-fledged Jew. However, in secret, that's not what he is at all. He worships the devil. He, I don't know who he worships. It's not important. How are we meant to behave? Are we meant to root these people out? Should we function as an inquisition? That we find these people and root them out and punish them? Says Moshe Rabbeinu, says the Ramban, that is not our job. If these people operate in a normative way within society, that which they do in secret will be judged by God. He will be judged. He will make sure that they will 
pay the price for whatever it is that they're doing wrong. All hidden things are revealed before God. He knows what they're doing. He will take care of it. But the public transgressions are ours. So if somebody behaves in a way that counters societal norms as a Jew, then we must take care of it. It is our responsibility and it is our children's responsibility to do with them in accordance with all the words of this Torah, to punish idolaters as called for by the law of the Torah, and adds the Rambam. In my opinion, the simple meaning of the phrase Hanistarot, the hidden things, is that this means the sins that are hidden from those who perpetrate them. The Torah is saying that such hidden things are God's alone. We cannot be considered to have deliberately sinned with respect to them because they certainly were perpetrated solely due to error. So he comes up with another novel interpretation. You do something wrong. There are things that people do wrong. They don't know that they're doing something wrong. They are nistarot. You've got no idea, maybe, that nobody has any idea. You behave in a way that goes counter to the um, Torah that God has given us. Don't worry. He can handle it. He put us here. He knows our foibles. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the fact that we're not perfect. So leave that to him. Don't torture yourself over the fact that you may have done something wrong in your life. Don't become a neurotic. Don't become OCD because there may have been something that you once did wrong that you've forgotten and you never knew about. Don't worry about that. We cannot be considered to have deliberately sinned when we've done something wrong because such sins were perpetrated totally in error. However, says the Ramban, revealed things, niglot, premeditated transgressions, you sat down in a non-kosher restaurant and you ordered a pork chop. You decided deliberately that you wanted to be a Mechalel Shabbat. You purposely spoke Lashon Hara knowing full well that the words that you uttered were going to be so destructive, it's destructive in the social context of Lashon Hara. You did it. You transgressed deliberately. It was premeditated. They are in the domain of us and our children forever. To carry out all the words of this law as a statute forever, as this is what we took upon ourselves. So don't say later, yes, I did it and I'm not perfect because I'm a human and I'm imperfect. No, no, no. Your human imperfection is only related to the nistarot in your life. The things you don't know about and you didn't do deliberately. There are things, by the way, people make mistakes. You could be offensive by mistake. You can eat something which isn't kosher, but somebody told you it was kosher. You know, you've heard these stories of, of the uh, kosher butcher that provided non-kosher meat, yeah. right? Have you ever heard these stories? We had a story here. Doheny kosher butcher, uh, five years ago, seven years ago, whenever it was, he was selling non-kosher meat and people bought it. And it was just before Pesach. What are they meant to do? And it could have been going on for months or even years. You ate non-kosher meat. Says the Ramban, don't worry. 
הנסתרות להשם אלוקינו. That's in God's domain. You had no idea whether you ate kosher or treif. It's not your problem. Do you know what the problem is? If you walk into Ralph's or you walk into pavilions and you go to the non-kosher meat section and you buy a chicken and you go home and you cook it, you roast the chicken and you eat it, that is niglot. That's on you guys. That is lanu levaneinu adolam. That is your sin. That is something that you have to take into consideration when you reflect on the things that you may have done in your life. And the chaheina, the chaheina, any similar situation, if things that you have done are inadvertent, you had no idea, it was not something, don't think that all the things I said in Parashat Kitavon, the beginning of, of Nitzavim, apply to you. That falls under the rubric of Nistarot Lashem Elokeinu, says the Ramban. Do you know what? All these things at the end of Kitavo and the beginning of Nitzavim apply to? Niglot. That is Lanu Ulevaneinu. Make sure that you are conscientious. Make sure that you're on top of your game. That you don't allow yourself to fall in the trap of doing things which are wrong according to the Torah. Thinking to yourself, these laws don't apply to me. That is what Kitavo and the beginning of Nitzavim are talking about, says the Ramban. Those are Niglot and they are Lanu Ulevaneinu. They're on you. There is something that you will have to pay Din V'Cheshbon. You will have to make sure you're answerable for that. Let's look at the Sepharna. Says the Sepharna, in light of what we read earlier, about individuals who feel safe from punishment for their personal sins in periods when the community at large is Torah observant, right? We read that before. But the sins committed publicly must be dealt with by the judiciary, by both us and our children, as otherwise such phenomena cannot be eradicated from your midst. Okay, so the first thing he says, that you have to make sure that if you're not going to be guilty by association, the people who deliberately sin within your community are not part of your community because guilt by association is guilt. Turning a blind eye to people who misbehave or who disregard the requirements of being Jewish and a servant of God have an effect on the community at large. They are considered niglot, and they are Lanu, and they are Levaneinu. Another idea, this is something else that the Sfarno says, when the prophet Isaiah, at the end of describing the idyllic state of mankind on earth after the arrival of Mashiach, of the Messiah, states that God will also select priests and Levites from among the Gentile nations. Oh my God, that's shocking! That's what it says in Isaiah. Yeshaya says... That when Mashiach comes, we're going to have Kohanim, when we're going to have Leviim, and they're not only going to be those who are descended from the tribe of Levi, we're going to choose priests and Levites from the Gentile nations. This is also something reserved for God's judgment alone. That is Nistarot Lashem Elokeinu. Don't try and second guess God on the basis of your own Jewish prejudice. 
I mean, there's no one more prejudiced than a Jew, usually against another Jew. I quoted it last, last week in my piece that I wrote at the, in the Twiller Notebook. There's only one thing that two Jews can agree upon, and that's what the third one should be giving to charity, right? That's what we, in our minds, we're convinced that we have the answer for every other Jew, and we've got it perfect. You know, I, I like to say that every Jew thinks that they've reached the perfect equilibrium. Whoever is frumer than them is a fanatic. And whoever is less frum than them is a goy. Right? And that's in our mind. But it doesn't matter what level you are, every Jew thinks the same thing. It's going to come to the time of Mashiach, and God is going to be making decisions about who's going to occupy the roles within the God-worshipping community. And that's going to include Gentiles. Says Yeshaya, there's going to be Gentile Kohanim and there are going to be Gentile Leviim. Look at it, it's in chapter 66, verse 13 in Isaiah. Says the, says the Sephorino, this is something that is reserved for God judgment alone. It's covered by the line, by the phrase, Hanistarot In other words, that there are hidden matters which only God is aware of, not man. Don't you try and say, God, you don't know what you're doing. God knows exactly what he is doing. Those things which niglot, that we know, things that we are educated in, that we are familiar with, we understand how to run them. Niglot, lanu ulevaneinu. Nistarot, don't you try and second-guess God when you have no idea what's being fed into the equation. Let's look at the Malbim. This is number seven in your source sheet. Shebe'inyan galut Yisrael v'shamamta ha'aretz yesh ba'zeh ta'amim nistarim asher rak l'ashem elokeinu l'gulutam l'ireyav l'glotam l'ireyav when it comes to the exile that the Jewish nation has to suffer, ultimately there are aspects of it that only God understands. We have found ourselves now in exile for almost 2,000 years. Right? This year it's going to be something like 1,950 years, a year or here, here or there, which, uh, um, you know, I may be wrong. I think that the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was in the year 70, and we're now coming up to the year, um, we're going to be 2020. There's going to be 1,950 years since the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It happens to be that the revolt started in 66 and that Masada happened in 73. So there's some, um, you know, there's a bit of a gap. There's a number of years, but it's almost 2,000 years since the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. Why? Says the Malbim Hanistarot Lashem Elokeinu. Vahaniglot, hey ma shenatan liglot hu lanu ulvanenu adolam. The things that we know are the things that we know. And we should celebrate the fact that we know the things that we know. Because our expectation that we should understand everything about our situation is misplaced. She'af achar she'galinu me'artzenu. Because even after we were exiled from our land and all the words of the covenant came to pass, 
Don't think that suddenly we are free from the obligations of the Torah. Those aspects of the Torah that we are still able to observe apply to us lanu levanenu ad olam. Nistarot, you know, we, for example, we can't bring korbanot anymore. There's no more sacrifice because there's no more temple. That's the reason why God would have created a situation where huge elements of the Torah, of the things that we are commanded to do, are no longer in our ability to achieve. That's nistarot l'ashem elokeinu. But the niglot, the things that we are still able to observe, says the Malbim, lanu levanenu ad olam. You can't abandon them simply because there are those things which are no longer applicable. And even in our exile, we are with him. And he is our God. Who guards us. Who looks after us. From destruction. He's looking for the moment when he can return us to the land and we will return to him. And in this way, the world, the, sorry, the land of Israel will be repaired from all the damage, from all the terrible things that have happened to it. That God has wrought upon it. So you must understand that there is a dynamic here. There's something going on which is not just our ordinary mundane lives as Jews living in an exile, in a diaspora. We are always on the cusp of returning, of God returning us, of having that incredible revival. By the way, we've seen it in our lifetimes, the revival of the Jewish language, the revival of the land of Israel through the state of Israel, the revival of Torah life despite the tragedy of the Holocaust. We have seen this happen. That is niglot, lanu levanenu. And there are nistarot. We have to understand why Temple Mount is still under the jurisdiction of the Muslim waqf and we cannot build our temple. We must understand that that is a fact. Nevertheless, it's nistarot. Those are the reasons for these things is hidden from us, says the Malbim. Don't try and calculate why, if this happened, that hasn't happened. There are things that we understand and things that we don't understand. This parasha is here to tell you what you should be doing as a Jew after the brachot, the blessings and the klalot, the curses, have actually occurred. After that, what happens the day afterwards? You wake up the following morning, how should you be? Niglot lanu ulevanenu. Begam yodim shekemoshe betzeitam b'mitzrayim. And they should also know that in the same ways that when they left Egypt, when the exodus occurred, sheyuchalim cholim becholin hanefesh, haita refuatam laloch b'midbar lekabela Torah. What was the cure for the terrible afflictions? I'm talking about spiritual afflictions that affected them. How were they meant to emerge from the spiritual Egypt, they'd emerged from the physical, the practical exodus had occurred. How were they meant to emerge from the spiritual Egypt in which they found themselves? They need to go into the desert, into the wilderness, and they need to receive the Torah. That is the way that they were cured from the effects, from the ill effects of being slaves in Egypt for such a long period of time. 
And now, after the Torah has already been given, we can't have the same cure because that a cure has already a cure has already been given to us. So the only cure that can affect the Jewish nation is through the blessings on the one hand and the curses on the other hand, the consequences. That is the um, stimulus that is going to enable us to emerge and to perpetuate and to sustain ourselves throughout the period that follows. Throughout Jewish history, it is the brachot and the klalot that has sustained our identity. Only through an understanding of our unique destiny as a nation, that all the things that have happened to us fall into this paradigm, into this structure of Kitavon, the beginning of Nitzavim, of this Brachot Klalot, and all the things that have happened to us have been predicted to us thousands of years ago. Through that, we will be cured of any deviation and our national and religious identity will be sustained and maintained throughout Jewish history. By the way, here we are, right? We're in the year 2019 in Beverly Hills as Jews. Do you know why? Because what the Malbim is, says, is saying is 100% true. That our identity has been sustained as a result of the fact that um, the travails of our history were predicted thousands of years before most of the events occurred. Continues the Malbim. And through this, As a result of understanding the details of our destiny and the fact that they happened and why they happened, we will be more interested to understand the word of God in general. And to discharge our duty doing all his mitzvot. So we will be upset. Once we understand the word of God, we will understand the many aspects of the Torah that we are not able to observe, and it will affect us. In other words, understanding our history. You're a Jew? You went through history? You, where, where are you from? Where, where, where's your family from? It's from Russia? From Morocco? It's from here? It's from there? What happened to your Jewish community? What? You were there hundreds of years, a thousand years. Now you're here. You're somewhere else. Your family went through this. Your great-grandfather was this person. Your grandfather was that. How does it affect me? Who am I? What am I as a person? That's suddenly going to interest you in your Jewish heritage. Not just in, in genealogical research, but in understanding what it means to be a Jew. Why did me, why did, why did I as a person and my family go through all the things, the trials and the tribulations that we went through? What was the purpose of it? The purpose was something, we had to keep mitzvot, and suddenly you're going to discover there's many mitzvot that you can observe, but oh my gosh, there's so many mitzvot I can't observe. And the reason I can't observe them is because we don't have the land of Israel in the way that we need to have it in order to, uh, to observe those laws. Suddenly everything is put into context. That is the Nistarot and the Niglot coming together as a force, an underpinning force, a fundament of Jewish identity in order to preserve 
this Jewish national and religious character. That is what this Pasuk is telling us. Through this you will, you will reach a desire, etc. And when God sees that through this interest in our heritage, in our traditions, in our history, that there is a uh, desire to return to God, through that, God will be motivated. God will be inspired through our own interest in our Jewish identity to make sure that that identity is perpetuated and circumstances will change so that Jewish identity will be sustained. And the greatest example of that, of course, is the Jews who were so far away from God and so far away from their Jewish heritage and traditions suddenly became interested in Zion, suddenly became interested in the land of Israel. All these secular Jews became interested in identifying with a piece of land, which is geography, frankly, right? They could have gone as... You know, at the beginning of the 1900s, there was a great discussion as to whether the Jews should go to Uganda, right? Whether the Zionist movement should be recalibrated simply to find a territory where Jews could move from Europe. And secular Jews led the charge against that idea. They, this wasn't a territorial movement. This was a Zionist movement. This wasn't a nationalist movement. This was a Jewish movement. We need to have our future based on the Jewish settlement or resettlement of the land of Israel. And you know what happened as a result of that? It didn't happen immediately. God heard our prayers. God was listening. God understood that this rekindling of Jewish identity had to be matched with the ability of Jews to live in the circumstances that they had, you know, um, dreamt of. And as a result of that, the state of Israel was created. That is a perfect example. By the way, the Malbim was writing in the late 1800s, long before the Zionist movement, long before the state of Israel was even the dream. And yet he understood this dynamic, the dynamic between Nistarot and Niglot, and between the Jewish identity being at the center of the uh, Jewish psychology or the psyche, and the ultimate result, which is that God will respond. Look what he says, like a prophet. He will gather them from all the nations. He will bring them back to their land and he will be good to them. What better example can we have of the hashgacha, of the, of the destiny of the Jews, the direction that is purely God-ordained, that we are going to survive as a Jewish nation when we identify with our Jewish character as a people? Continues the Malbim. Ulafi. We were in Galut Babel for 70 years. Even though they were, they were cured from the 
afflictions that they had suffered earlier, why had they been exiled to Babylon? Shigalu shehem gilu arayot and shvichat damin. They were guilty of three cardinal sins: idolatry, immorality, and murder. Aval hisigu machlot acherot harben. There were many other things that they had suffered from. Mikoshekain. Now that after we have been many centuries in exile in, in every corner of the world, when they're going to return to the land, it will be good for them. So what happened after hundreds of years of misdemeanors and crimes of the Jews and being in Babel, what happened to them is they came back to the land and God promised them, as it's recorded in the Talmud, that the desires for them to misbehave in those ways that had caused them to go into exile, those desires would be removed. And in the same way as they suffered from the many um, persecutions and problems that they had in the 70 years of exile Babel in Babylon. And they managed to withstand that challenge. As a result of the prayers of the, of the uh, men of the great assembly, the initial rabbinic assembly of the second temple period, Yitzhad, um, uh, all the desires that had caused them to lose the temple and be exiled were now removed from them. The whole idea of the inclinations that draw you away from God, those are tests for a human being. And those tests were removed once they had been through this process, this cleansing, this rehabilitation process of the Galut. If you turn to the Creator or to the desire, to the part of you that draws you away from your Creator, and you've already um, been through this terrible um, and difficult challenge, and as a result of realizing that God exists and realizing that those desires are destructive, God will enable you to overcome them. That is the nistarot part. The niglot are the things that we know. The nistarot is the ability of God to enable us to move on despite our human frailty. And the um, the mitzvat, um, those things which God commanded you after they are already in the land, God blessed them with a blessing, a double blessing, a triple blessing. And he will be happy with them in the same way as he was happy with our forefathers. In other words, notwithstanding our drift away from normative Judaism, from the observance of mitzvot, the mere fact that we desire to retain our identity and to be Jews and identify as Jews and have this concept that being Jewish is something worth fighting for and having our land is something worth 
worth protecting and preserving, that in and of itself will enable us to return to our Jewish identity and God will be happy with us and celebrate us in the same way as he celebrated our forefathers, our patriarchs. As it says, the Posuk in Yeshaya, That's what the Pasuk says. I want to look at the Kedushat Levi, which I think is so beautiful. He asks a very simple question, one which we've already dealt with somewhat, but he asks it in a very direct way. What is Nistarot and what are Niglot? What is hidden, what is revealed? What is hidden? What is revealed when it comes to doing a mitzvah? What exactly are we talking about? Says the Kedushat Levi, when we perform a mitzvah, we cause God to be pleased that he created man. We are an experiment. Remember, the Jewish nation is just the end result of a human experiment. God created the universe so that he could have sentient, intelligent beings who could relate to him despite the handicap of being physical and living in a physical world. We are the result, the ultimate result of that experiment. And when we perform a mitzvah, we somehow justify God having allowed the creation of a physical being. The thing is, when we comply with requests made to us by a fellow human being, we cannot immediately gauge whether he is pleased by our actions or not, by his reaction. Something that is not the case when we comply with God's requests from us. So you, if you do somebody a favor, what do they say? Hopefully if they're polite. Thank you. If you tell, give somebody a compliment or you give somebody a gift, they smile. They're happy with you. They become your friend. So you can immediately know there's an immediate um, reaction by which you can gauge whether or not the thing you've done is a nice thing or not a nice thing. Right? So you, you have that interaction. That doesn't exist when you do something for God. You don't have. Let's say you do a mitzvah. You ate kosher today, right? You didn't eat treif. You uh, said Shema this morning, right? You didn't need to say the Shema. You said the Shema. Did you get... You did Slichot. Did you get a reaction from God by doing Slichot? No reaction at all. Did you get a phone call from God? Hello, this is God speaking. I want to tell you how happy I am that you did Slichot this morning. No one cares, right? I mean, it sounds like no one cares. God doesn't care because if he would care, surely he would phone you. He's got your cell number. So why didn't he call you? But when you do something, you do a favor for somebody, they do call you. I mean, hopefully, that's the way we behave. So says the Kedushat Levi that we have an immediate reaction when we do something for another human being, but we don't have a reaction when we comply with God's requests. Since he is invisible, he doesn't speak to us, as he did to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu, panim el panim. We have no way of knowing if our efforts to please him have actually been successful. And when we tr try to perform deeds that are for our personal benefit, we can immediately determine if our efforts have succeeded. For example, I'm just going to give you a stupid example. We go in the street, we want to park our car. We don't want to get a ticket. No one wants to get a ticket, right? You don't want to get a parking fine. So you take a quarter out of your little purse and you put it into the meter which is standing on the side of the street. What happens when you put the coin in the meter? you immediately see on the little screen display that you, how long you've got, right? There's an immediate reaction to something that you've done. So you know 
the effect of your investment. I stack in the quarter, 25 cents, and I now have 15 minutes, whatever the amount of time is. You have an immediate reaction to the thing that you've done. But this is the hidden element present whenever we perform any of God's commandments. This is what the Torah had in mind when it wrote, Hanistarot l'ashem elokeinu. Because we put the quarter in, there's no little screen to tell us that we did something right. We don't know. On the other hand, the benefits which the performance of the Torah confers upon us will be revealed forever. So don't think that just because nistarot al Hashem elokeinu, that the niglot are not going to be lanu levanenu adolam. There will be a benefit. There is a benefit. And it's an eternal benefit. It will be for us and for our children forever. Masha Abenu wants to reassure, says the Kedushat Levi, wants to reassure the Jewish nation that just because it appears to be Nistarot, it's not really Nistarot, it's Niglot, because it's Lanu Levanenu Adolam. The perpetuation of Jewish identity is a direct result of you putting the quarter into that meter. You can't see the little screen. And we're not prophets that we can actually see the future. What's going to be in a year or 10 years or 100 years? We have no idea. But Moshe Rabbeinu wants to reassure them that there will be niglot, they will be lanu, and they will be levanenu ad olam for eternity. The fact that I am still Jewish is because my father, my grandfather, going back thousands of years, put little quarters in the meter every time they reached a place where they needed to park. You know why they put the quarter in the meter? Not because they were parking their own car. They were parking my car. I am the car that they were parking. I am the Levanenu Ad Olam, says the Kudushat Levi. So that even though it's Nistarot, Lashem Elokeinu, you might think that it is hidden because it's something you've done for God. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, Niglot is Lanu Levanenu Ad Olam. Just open your eyes, look around you. Look at you and your children and your grandchildren, your families, your community. Look at the Jewish nation, its achievements and its successes. That is the niglot, the alanu ulevanenu adolam. And finally, because we don't have time actually for the tenth source, but just for the ninth, the mehashiloach, the ishbitza. Kesha'adam over avera beseiter, shum adam. Somebody does an avera. Nobody knows about it. Did that ever happen to you? I'm not going to ask that question. People do averis. People do things which are wrong, right? But nobody knows about it. Nobody knows. That's between you and God. That's not something that relates to the rest of the Jewish nation. If you do something that is wrong, that nobody else knows about, that is a private situation between you and God. That is something that God will judge you upon based on who you are, etc., etc. And God is merciful and kind and he will judge you in the way he judges you and probably mercifully and he will be kind to you. And he will uh, judge you in such a way that you won't suffer as a, a result of having done something very wrong, but very privately. That is the nistarot l'ashem elokeinu. However, aval. Im yesh echad sheyada o shera'a davah hazeh sheasa chavero. 
What happens if somebody does something wrong, they know or somebody else knows about it. It's something which is no longer a secret, right? He saw something that somebody else that he knows did wrong. That has repercussions for the entire Jewish nation. What are you talking about? One person knows it has repercussions for everyone else. You want to know why you saw someone else doing something wrong? There's some type of association with that act that you have. You need to judge yourself on the basis that you are familiar with the sins of others. It's not a private thing anymore. It's niglot. Why was it revealed to you, says the Ishbitzer? Why do you know about it? Because it's no longer between that person and God. There's a reason that you knew about it. There's clearly something that you need to work on in your own character in order to improve yourself. It's lanu ulevanenu ad olam. The whole reason that you saw it was because there was some lesson for you to learn. And as a result of which, you need to start thinking about tshuva. You need to start thinking about your own process of repentance and reconnection and renewal of your relationship with God. Why? Because you are familiar with the sins of others. You don't live in isolation. You live in a community where other people may be doing things wrong and you're aware and familiar with them. And you need to work on yourself because it has a broader impact it has a broader implications. That is the point that Ishbitzer is making. It has broader implications than simply a personal and private incident that may have happened between that individual and God. You know about it. You need to work on yourself. What that person needs to do is what that person needs to do. By the way, you need to help him. That we heard earlier. We need to make sure that society at large is not affected by those of Eirot. But you are affected simply because you know about it. Each and every Jew who has something that happens, that happens to them, it affects them, and they need to work on themselves in order to counteract that effect. We will leave it here for today. Thank you.